Hi, friend. Welcome to episode 28 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. Today, the featured conversation is about how to prepare for your moment with playwright, storyteller, and visual artist Vanessa Adams. Every day I gotta stop for a minute, think about how good my life is with you in it. Every day I wanna stop and think about you. I'm your host, Sally Adams. Every week, I talk to people about creating original work for a live audience. Thanks so much for the comments you've been leaving. I still could use a couple more reviews on iTunes. Thanks to Beck, George, and Pat for your reviews. You can also send an email to sally at sallypal.com. Your ideas keep great conversations coming every Monday evening. Thanks for sharing the podcast and the blog. Check out sallypal.com slash join for the free 20-page theater resource. It's a glossary of live performance support you'll need for your show. I'm working on an additional performing arts resource. Please let me know if you have any ideas. If there are things you think ought to be included in the creator's notebook, just let me know with an email. In this episode, you'll hear my guest, Vanessa Adams-Harris, share about her artistic process. Vanessa is a gifted actor and storyteller, among other things, and she's created or co-created several one-woman works, including Who Will Sing for Lena by Jay Liddell, Big Mama Speaks, a 1921 race riot survivor by Hannibal Johnson, a portrayal of Oklahoma legend Ada Louise Sipwell Fisher, and her original work about Rosa Parks titled A Simple Act of Courage. My interview with Vanessa was so inspiring because she is truly committed to her audience's experience. She encourages artists to prepare for your moment. This morning, I watched a video of Oprah Winfrey's Golden Globe speech in which she highlighted Rosa Parks' commitment to prepare for the moment. Vanessa's words carry so much weight because she has taken her message of humanity all over the world. Like Oprah Winfrey, Vanessa's words carry so much weight because she lives her message. And Vanessa has taken that message of humanity all over the world. I believe that we are witnessing the birth of a cultural renaissance. Not kidding. Artists like Vanessa are at the forefront of this exciting time. Vanessa is prepared, and from what I can tell, it's gonna be beautiful. I hope you'll listen until the end of the interview for concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. Let's get started. Vanessa Adams, welcome to Sally Pal. Hi, Sally Pal. I'm so excited to talk to you. You are doing amazing things. Thank you. You've been on the East Coast a little bit this year, so tell me about the show that you've been working on. I have a couple of new projects that I'm working on. I was on the East Coast, I think I was in North Carolina this year. I directed a production of The Wiz for a community up in Hickory, about 30 miles outside of Charlotte. Wonderful little community, just a beautiful little production that happened. And then I came home to Oklahoma, and I was part of the uh, Chautauqua programming that the Arts and Humanities of Oklahoma and Tulsa, and I did that for the month of June. We take historical figures 
and study and try to bring out some different things that we don't normally know about them. I was actually doing a Black Seminole Indian woman by the name of Joanna July. You're Cherokee also, is that right? No, I'm actually Creek. I don't care where I am in the world. People know, oh, Cherokee. Like, no, there are other Indians in the world, actually. No, 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 no other Indians. (laughs) Just Cherokee. Right. Isn't that the thing about being an artist is the opportunity to bring things to life? Always has been. I mean, that's what art, you know, to me, art is humanity. It teaches us how to be human, how to express our humanness, how to express our qualities, how to be with each other as humans. Mm -hmm. Because after all, you know, we're not a tree trying to be a human. We're a human trying to be a human with other humans trying to be human. (laughs) We can pretend to be a flower because we want to try to understand the, you know, the movements of the flower and the growth of the flower and the swing of the flower and the breeze and everything. But, you know, the flowers and the grass and the trees and the leaves, they're really not fighting each other. There's not a war out there between them. There's a war between the humans. I think art allows us a passageway into a secret place called humanity. (laughs) I could not agree more with you on that. You've made the point that we're at war with each other, and you look around and you see even the organisms in our guts, they seem to be able to work together. I won't gender bash, but I am curious (laughs) about, you know, a missing link that Mm -hmm. seems to be... In a a very male-dominant perspective, my father is a man, and he's one of the favorite, my favorite, favorite people in this world and the other world, and I have many brothers because I'm the youngest of a a family of 13 siblings, and I love my brothers, and I love my brothers, blood or otherwise. Of, Of course, I think we're all blood because we're humans. But when I was in India participating in Women's Playwriting International Conference as a speaker as well as a performer, I was just struck with the fact uh, that I could feel, I mean, I've not ever felt really the life force uh, of us as human beings until I was in Mumbai. And I could feel, like, I could feel our pulses. I mean, I could feel our energy. Literally, I could just feel it. And what happened was there was a little, there was a, a, a woman that was outside of our house where we were staying, and she was coming up to me. She was very dark skinned, and she was coming up to me, and she was asking, you know, asking for stuff. And so our driver kept saying, you know, don't give her anything, don't say anything to her. And so I was trying to ignore her, and like I thought, you know, that was the thing we were supposed to do because he said if you give them something, you know, they'll be with you all the time. And I was like, well, okay, so what? And she had this beautiful, fun, of course, all the fabric over there is beautiful, but it was this beautiful, dark, emerald green sari that she was wearing. And she lived on the street. I mean, she lived unbeknownst to me. She lived, like, outside of the house where we were staying. And she had this little baby on her hip. And the baby was naked, and she had him on her hip. And, you know, she's, <laughs> one day we, were, we went across the street, me and the professor that I was traveling with, and we went across the market. Uh, we went across the street to the market, and we're buying some things. And the woman saw me. And so I was trying to ignore her, and she pushed my shoulder like, you're not going to ignore me. And I started laughing. I was laughing, and she said, hey, listen, <laughs> give me something, you know. And I started laughing, and I hugged her. And I was like, thank you for waking me up, you know. 
he couldn't speak English or anything and stuff. I, you know, I, whatever I had, I tried to give it to her. I was struck with this thought. This was a profound aha moment for me. Whatever we're doing, babies are still being born. So we have to find a way in how to cross these uh, various uh, landscapes and, and waters that we as humans have created because babies are still being born. And, mm-hmm. I mean, she lived in the street, and she yeah. had a beautiful little baby on her, her hip. And as I, as that thought came to me and as I was uh, traveling throughout the city and I saw these little children living in filth and whatever, but they were children and playing and going along as children do. And But I thought, okay, whatever we're doing, babies are still being born, so we need to kind of get it together. You know, if we're not doing things that really help them, then we're actually failing at our own humanity. And so what, what is it? How can we be with each other really? How can we make this thing called humanity? How can we make it really work while we're here? How did you answer that question for yourself? I'm continuing to answer that question. That is always a thought in my mind, and I always push it forward when I'm speaking with other artists, community leaders, or whomever. How are we being with each other? And we And when we are with each other, we must remember that children are watching us. Children are listening to us engage with each other. They're watching us engage with what we call others who are just human beings. These, these others that we're engaging with, they're not a rock or, you know, I, when I'm talking to kids, I'm like, you know, we're, we're all really human. We, we are actually really alike. And we, we're already diverse when we show up into any kind of a room, any one of us. We already create diversity because then someone a different person, characteristic, uh, character, um, uh, skin tone, or whatever is coming into the room. What we really want is equity. We want to be equal with each other when we walk into a room. I don't want to feel like I'm lesser than because I'm a woman, because I'm a, a lesbian. I want to feel equal through diversity. We're already diverse, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you were in D.C. when Emily's play was up, and Emily, of my three kids, talk about someone who's opened me to diversity. She's a lesbian. She is bipolar, and she sees the world through a very different lens. I just want to say, Emily is perfect. Exactly. And one of her best friends in high school was deaf, and her uh, fiancé is also uh, partially deaf. And so that, to her, is a big issue, which it is for you, I think. And, and that sensitivity to people who are different. But then really not different. You know, you're placed in a difference because the other people are the ones that feel different. That's the delicious part of it, isn't it? Would you want to go to a restaurant that had one item on the menu? I try to really, really be aware of what makes me feel connected. And maybe I can explore that with someone else about being connected to me and being all right. Because, you know, like I said, I'm the youngest member of my family. And so, yes, I will admit this to anyone that's listening. I am spoiled. My family spoiled me. I happen to think that I belong everywhere and everyone is anyone that listen to me. So I can kind of get down on myself a little bit, but then I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Like, I remember when we moved to California from Oklahoma, and so I was considered different because they really had never seen a mixed-race person of Native ancestry. And so, you know, I didn't fall into the Mexican category, the Chicano, or anything. So the kids were like, you know, what what are you? And literally, they asked, yeah, and I was like, I've never been asked that before. I'm like, I'm an Adam. 
And so they were like, no, what are you? And I said, I'm, I'm an Adam. I'm my, my name is Adam. I'm the baby of the family. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, I went through all these things that tell you who you are. None of that was, I'm American Indian and African American. None of that came into the conversation because I'm like, that's a given. I'm an Adam. You know, I'm a mother and my father and, you know, that's Grace and that's Fuji and that's who I am. And, I, and not until I went back home and I was like, what is happening at the, you know, with these stupid California students? I did not like California because I thought it was too many people and they were going too many places too fast and it just didn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, I was 13. That was my opinion. And my mother had to explain to me what people were asking, actually. And it was really the first time I had been introduced to the concept of, you know, race. How did that strike you at age 13? It was weird. It it was weird because I never looked at people through that type of a lens. And so Mm -hmm. it was just, it was kind of saddening for me because I knew family. I didn't know this thing white and black and I didn't know that all that kind of pulling apart of me. And honestly, Vanessa, it feels like that is a conversation that I didn't have that conversation at age 13 with my parents. They didn't sit me down and say, you are Caucasian. That's just not a conversation that would show up. And I don't know of anybody who is white who's had that conversation. But I know plenty of people who have had that conversation. You have to have that conversation with your children at some point because somebody points out you're different. Right. I, I'm not different. Well, I'm the baby of the family. My sister won't let me play with her doll. But, you know, <laughs> but this because of the hue of your skin, because that's all it is, is the hue of your skin. Because if we all had kind of one bland skin tone, we, we would still be looking as humans. It's innate in us to look for uh, uh, something outside of ourselves to say, aha, well, your hair is a different color. So, sure, you know, sure. Nobody else has this problem. The animals don't have this problem. You know, we're the ones that have this problem. It's disgusting. It's almost almost embarrassing. So I almost apologize every time I walk outside to the grass and the trees and the birds. I'm like, I'm sorry, we're here. Tell me a little bit about how you address that as an artist, because you're also a playwright. And I think you have done some incredible work. I've seen you on stage. It's, there's no wonder you're on a national platform because you're one of those people that I can say, I knew her when. I try to be authentic for not only my sake, but for anyone who has lived this life. And I try to very much so respect that through um, theater is my particular art form right now, even though I do draw and paint. And that's a whole other story. A theater allows you, if you're open to it, to put yourself in another person's shoes for a moment just to understand possibly some of their decisions and what they might have been faced with in doing X, Y, and Z. So I really try to be a basic, regular, just bring in all the qualities of us as a human uh, and giving that experience as a woman and a woman of color. And I really want people to meet the real, you know, as close to the real person in my, through my body as you possibly can. So, you know, when I, one of the pieces I do, you mentioned Rosa Parks, I thought that Mrs. Parks, there was a misunderstanding when I began 
studying Mrs. Parks and then actually portraying her, I felt like all I ever heard was she was tired, she was old, and she just sat down. And just because she was tired, her feet were tired. And I thought, you know, I know for a fact that that just can't be true. Because in the African American community or any community, really, not just it's not just indicative of the African American community. There are regular people on the ground who do some amazing stuff. Like yeah. there were women of African ancestry and European ancestry, Anglo ancestry. They were already meeting in these communities. They were having prayer groups. They were doing little bitty things together already. But you'd never hear about that. And people in the community know them. But when the history gets told or when the story gets told, it needs to be a fabulous type of a story. And mm-hmm. so it comes out like, oh, she was this poor little woman that just was through the seamstress and she was catching the bus that particular day. Her feet were just tired. No, she didn't say her feet. She said her soul was tired. You know, it was just tiring. And she oh. was training children to do this. She had gone to the Highlander School. She was the secretary of the NAACP. Her husband had been involved with the Scottsboro Boys case. I mean, it was a lot. She wasn't just anybody. She was ready for that moment. And when that moment came, because she was on the same bus that she had been kicked off of 10 years earlier with the same bus driver. And so when that moment came, she was prepared to step into that moment. I think that's kind of what we missed. And we missed teach that kind of anything that we're getting, you know. It, it, you're prepared to step into something, and that's what all this stuff is about, is that, you know, the moment is always there. It's, I mean, it always comes through. Sometimes you're just not prepared to step into it, and then when you do step into it, you have to then be prepared. You have to be of a certain character to sustain and maintain. And I thought I knew Mrs. Park. I said, I know Mrs. Park. I know exactly who she is. I, I know how she would have carried herself. I thought about my own family and I thought about my grandmother who was born the same year as Mrs. Parks and was of a similar uh, stature that Mrs. Parks was. And so uh, my grandmother was, um, lived here in Oklahoma, my mother's mother. So her name was Mary. And she was a wonderful, wonderful grandmother and a seamstress. I asked her about, you know, segregation and stuff in Oklahoma back when I was 20-something. And I was like, so we're not going to do, they love KKK, you know, do they, you know, what was it like, you know, did they call you names and stuff like that? And she was like, no, I would never call that. And I said, you know, how? I mean, that's not, that's what they always called you guys, is that, you know, <laughs> right. like this to my grandma. <laughs> she's like, no, I said, well, then you took the train, you know, because they used to have a, the tra- a passenger train used to be in Oklahoma. To, mm-hmm. to take you from Okmulgee to Oklahoma City to all kind of places. Mm-hmm. And she would take the train, and I said, so, you know, what happened when you got on the train? Did they tell you, tell you to get in the last car or, you know, well, how did they treat you? She said, I had on my hat and my gloves, and I was clean and neat. And they put me in the first car. And it was the way she said that and the way that my grandmother said, she stood very straight. She made her clothing, which were tailored. She had a tailor's background. She's a darker brown skin woman, always smiling, had a quiet voice. And it was something about the way she said that, that I was like, oh, my goodness. So it's something that someone meets in those, in those moments. And it's very clear 
that uh, nobody's going to affront what they are seeing before them. That opened a doorway into my understanding of who Rosa Parks really was. Many of us have a Mrs. Parks in our family. Everybody is about. (laughs) You wrote the show. You performed the show. After a few performances, did you start to feel like you were developing a sense of responsibility for this story? So much so, Sally, because I was not a registered voter. And as I got into Ms. Park's life and realized that she could not vote, she tried many times to vote, and she couldn't. And then finally, not until she was a grown-ass woman, well into her 30s, did she finally earn the right to vote and she voted, then I said, okay, I need to get registered to vote. I didn't really understand understand how difficult it was for <laughs> people to just go and vote. The responsibility for me to vote and know about that came through Mrs. Park's life. I, I mean, I had to be honest about that. That's what made me register to vote. So tell me, how, how was it to have people afterwards respond to the show? People were really uh, grateful. The African-American community, of course, knows a lot of that stuff and knows that Mrs. Parks was not the first person to try to uh, break that barrier of, of riding the bus. Getting that in there, it was just gratitude. But I would say the most profound moment that happened to me was performing in a community called DeLand, Florida. And there was a little girl. I did a talk back, of course, after the show, and then she wanted to meet me. And she was of Anglo ancestry, and she came with her grandmother. And her grandmother said she wanted to meet Rosa Parks. She was so excited that she wanted to wear her Sunday dress. She wore her Sunday dress. She even had on little gloves and just like she was going to church. And this little girl, she must have been seven or eight years old. I mean, you would have thought that she was meeting Rosa Parks in her mind she was. And she said to me, she said to Mrs. Parks, I was so happy that you don't hate white people. And so when I talk about children are watching us, children are watching us literally. And they're listening to what we're saying. What is our intention? And I, of course, you know, I hugged her and I said, never, 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 never. Mrs. Parks was a human rights activist. Children were her life and her dream. And I talk about that in the show, of course. And that's what that little girl got out of that performance. It was profound. To me, it was profound. And I've had that happen to me with children many times, especially with Mrs. Parks. But when I talk about the Tulsa massacre from 1921... I am so glad to hear you use that term because every time I hear race riot, I cringe a little. I was writing a show about it. I just realized this was not a riot. And it's a disgusting thing. And it happened across the country that there were many of these so-called race riots, but they were actually attacks on the African-American and or Jewish communities. And the word riot was attacked because if your property was destroyed, then if it was a riot, your insurance would take care of what your loss was. Across the country, that wording was used. It was not a riot. And so we get to now, present day, understand really fully what a riot looks like and what Mm -hmm. an attack looks like. It opens the, the door to another conversation. I have a show that was written by Hannibal Johnson, and I put a couple of things in it extra to kind of make it fully realized. And I'm a survivor 
from the massacre of 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And I, the perspective is from a 10 or 11-year-old child. But now, you know, I'm 90-something years old talking about that experience. When I did that and children, two little girls in North Carolina, as a matter of fact, came up to me after the show. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to meet, you know, the old lady. They wanted to meet right. her. They wanted to know, and they were crying because they were, I think they were about six and seven years old, and they said, we want to know, and they were little Anglo girls, they wanted to know who made you cry because whoever made you cry, they are bad people, and we want to know who they are. And so, you know, even though I had given the whole history, they wanted specifics. They were going to call them up. Exactly. They were like, we love you. And the thing about art, uh, though, Sally, is, you know, there are many ways that we can engage with each other. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, there are all all kinds of ways of learning. And so Mm -hmm. I think we have to explore all types of ways. Whereas some people get a full discussion and they get a lot out of it. Some people get nothing out of that. In a performance of theater, it's like your secret garden. When you're in that seat and the lights go down, it's just you and the person or people on the stage. And there's something that happens. There's a rope that's being given and, and somebody latches onto it with their heart because I'm totally a heart person. And so mm-hmm. I want to engage our heart because I know that's right. where growth happens in your heart. All I'm trying to reach is your heart. And if you can have a heart-to-heart connection, then a person feels seen and heard and believed, and they have a little more courage, I think, in that in those moments. So when they leave the theater, when the lights come up and they leave that theater, they're able to go, oh, my God, I don't know what happened, but something just happened to me. I feel more like I have something. They don't know what it is. They don't know. Mm-hmm. You know and it doesn't happen to everybody. But some mm-hmm. people just think they're being entertained, and, but then some people get a heart moment. And those, that's the great thing about theater. And I, I say it's all because you're in that seat. It's just you in that seat. It's just you in, in your mind and in your heart and your body. And you can allow yourself to go somewhere, to be somewhere, to be somebody in that moment. It's just a precious, precious thing. And it's like if you're in a room and there's like five of you get the same thing, you can feel that. Yes. You know, Julie Tattershall referred to that as an energy loop, like an uh, uh, an emotional energy loop. You can definitely feel it. And that's why I say when the lights come up and you can kind of look around sometimes. I mean, sometimes people just have to hug each other because they don't really know what happened. They don't know. It's a connection that you either felt before or you've never felt before, and you're like, wow. It's just like, wow. And you have to have allowed yourself to open up to that. And art, just I think it's a wormhole. <laughs> I think it's a wormhole. Anything that's where you and the audience are with each other in a room, there's that visceral thing that happens. I've had the opportunity to perform on some international stages, and it is, I mean, the beautiful thing about art is that it crosses borders, and you don't have to speak the language. There may not be words for that experience, and that's fine. That's why, you know, I say it, it totally, you know, art totally describes our humanity back to us. have so many different forms of it. There are different ways to engage with it. Somebody's going to get it. Vanessa, you are just a gift. 
I find you a joy to talk with. Oh, thank you, Sally, my sister. My sister. I just thank you for thinking about me and thank you for your work. Fabulous children that you have produced. Amazing beings out in this world. You're so sweet. I'm very proud of all of them. It's now time for Concise Advice from the Interview. A short version of tips from my guest, Renaissance woman, Vanessa Adams-Harris. Here are five important bits of advice. Number five, when you're in the audience, allow yourself to go along with the storyteller in the moment. Number four, remember that children hear and see us interact with each other as humans. Number three, if one form of artistic expression doesn't work for you, Try something else. Number two, be prepared for your moment. And the number one piece of advice from Renaissance woman, Vanessa Adams-Harris, be authentic. That's it for concise advice from the interview. Check out the blog, sallypal.com, for articles and podcast episodes. You can be part of the momentum that's building Sign up for a free Creator's Notebook insert at sallypal.com slash join. Thank you for sharing, subscribing, reviewing, joining, and thank you for listening. I want you to pursue your dream to have your work on the stage in front of a live audience. It's scary, but Sally Pal is here with resources, encouragement, and a growing community of people like us. I'm Sally, and this is Sally Pal. The P-A-L in PAL stands for Performing Arts Lab. Now, I have one bit of wisdom from my husband, George, the coolest guy on the planet. George, what's your wisdom for today? If you aren't making some mistakes, you aren't taking enough chances. Excellent advice indeed, George. Excellent advice indeed. If you're downloading and listening on your drive to work, or falling asleep to my cheery chitter-chatter like my sister does, let me know you're out there. I want to help you create original shows for a live audience. All the performances you've seen on stage once lived only in someone's imagination. Now, prepare for your moment. Think about you Every day I gotta stop for a minute Think about how good my life is with you in it Every day I wanna stop and think about you I love that. I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna steal that. But I stopped worrying about it because, yeah, my sister is the one who said, you know, it's going to be messy. Don't worry about it. Be messy. <laughs> I've never heard the muse referred to as a stalker, but I love it. <laughs> I want to help you create original shit. <sighs> Thanks, babe. I don't know what's going on in there.
Vanessa is too amazing to even be able to speak about her. I can't believe I'm able to say her name without being struck by lightning. She's so amazing. What's going on in there? The time is right. You are the right messenger. And the art is already so beautiful and so important. And I think you are reaching a ton of people, but there are many more people who could receive this message and, and really be with it. Oh, my and gosh. 